0: In an epic and wholly unexpected turn of events, a young Israelite shepherd has single-handedly dispatched the Philistines' undefeated heavyweight champion, a giant named Goliath. It's a huge breakthrough for Israel which has been tormented by its Philistine enemies and the ensuing battle is a rout. Israel and its king Saul are euphoric. Naturally, the story has been used repeatedly ever since to demonstrate that underdogs can win, while those of a religious bent are quick to point out that it is God's involvement that allows David to prevail. Still elated, Saul immediately promotes David, making him a general in his army. To say that the two men's relationship goes downhill from here is the dictionary definition of understatement. My name is Chaz bayfield and this is holy bible episode 66 204 skins welcome back or welcome aboard if you're new to this podcast you'll notice from the tinny background aura that i'm still visiting my mum without any soundproofing but it's the content not the sound quality that's what they say anyway holy bible if you don't already know is kind of the bible light a lazy person's journey through all 66 books of the old and new testaments i don't wag fingers i don't preach i simply tell the story as it appears in the bible and allow you the listeners to make up your minds whether it makes any sense or whether there's any truth in it Personally I love it especially the books relating to Israel's monarchy. They are absolute page turners and the story of David and Goliath and the aftermath of this particular adventure is without doubt one of the most exciting in the Bible. So without any more preamble let's get stuck into Israel which is now being ruled by its first king. Spirit in Saul's son Jonathan. Both men have shown themselves to be incredibly brave and both have gone into dangerous battle situations with no fear for their own safety. The writer tells readers that Jonathan loves David like he loves himself and gives him his battle clothing, his sword and his bow. David thrives in Saul's army and the men appear to support him wholeheartedly. He is a genuine success as a general his military victories win him such fame that women across Israel sing to him as he passes by, suggesting that he kills by the tens of thousands, while Saul only kills by the thousands. While he is initially supportive of his new signing, Saul now boils with jealous rage at the women singing, assuming that David now wants to replace him. In a moment of insanity, which the Bible attributes to a tormenting spirit, He hurls a spear at David. Psychiatrists believe that Saul is suffering from bipolar disorder, which explains his bouts of the blues. David evidently hasn't been able to relinquish his duties as musician, and the attack happens while he is playing his lyre for the king. Saul threatens to pin him to the wall, suggesting that this was more a warning than an actual attempt on his life. In any case, the spear misses, but David is left in no doubt how his king feels about him. In what might possibly be a crude attempt to make the problem go away, Saul makes David commander of a force of 1,000 men. As a military leader on active missions, there is high chance that David might die in combat. But instead, David triumphs in every campaign he fights, making Saul fear him even more. The king then honours his original promise to reward the warrior who defeats Goliath with his daughter Merab's hand in marriage. However, as he gifts the young woman to David, he urges him to continue fighting God's battles. This might be another ploy. By attributing the fight against the Philistines as a holy war, Saul is hoping to inflame David's patriotism. Consumed by jihad, he might possibly fight in a rash, hot-headed way that may lead to poor decision-making, recklessness and death. David either isn't interested in Merab or it's a similar case to the armour given to him to fight Goliath. It's just a bit much. He tells Saul that he's from too low a family to marry a king's daughter, but by now another daughter of Saul has fallen for him, Michal. Delighted, Saul sees his child as another potential enemy against David, or at least someone embedded in David's household who is also loyal to him. Saul's attendants persist with their matchmaking. They assure David that his king adores him so much that he wants him to be part of his family. David remains adamant. He is too unknown in Israel to marry a royal, he tells them. However, there does appear to be a bit of wiggle room. Possibly sensing that David enjoys a challenge, Saul lets on that Michal can be won if David can present him with 100 Philistine foreskins. David accepts and Saul is delighted. Sending David into a combat situation gives his problem general another chance to get annihilated by the Philistines. Meanwhile David appears delighted that Michal is so easy to win. As currencies go, foreskins are an unusual one. But David heads into battle. Before the deadline set by Saul runs out, he returns with twice the allotted number of foreskins and walks away with a love-struck Michal. In what must rank as one of the most gruesome tasks in the Bible, the skins are counted out before the king, a gory representation of the value he attaches to his daughter. According to the book, Saul realises that God is on David's side and that his daughter is properly in love with him and David remains the king's enemy until the day he dies. As David continues to repel more Philistine raids than Saul, the king's jealousy ratchets up several notches. Jonathan realises that his father is intent on killing his best friend and warns David to lie low while he tries to talk Saul down. Jonathan reminds Israel's king that David took his life in his hands for God and country when he fought Goliath and warns him that he will have the blood of an innocent man on his hands if he kills him. Apparently contrite, Saul promises on oath not to harm David and the two men find themselves back on good terms with one another once again. The Philistines invade yet again and David repels them with such force that they run away in terror. Rather than be happy that his general is so effective in protecting his country, Saul descends into yet another jealous rage. The evil spirit that dogs him takes control once more and again he tries to javelin David while he is playing music for him. Saul's promises to back down appear to be so paper thin as to render them meaningless and, convinced that his king wants him dead, David flees to his house. Saul has men staked out around the building like federal agents, watching his every move. Tipped off by Michal, David exits through a window just as Saul's soldiers enter the compound to finish him off. His cunning wife places a life-size idol in David's bed to fool the soldiers that Saul's hated general is under the covers, and she tells the men that David is sick. It's unclear why an idol is so readily available in David and Michal's house. Reasons given by Bible purists are that 1. Michal might have grabbed it from elsewhere 2. She isn't as religious as her husband and keeps idols because she isn't able to conceive or 3. She simply has a lifelike model of her husband to remind her of him when he is not home. When Saul demands that David's bed be brought to him so that he can kill him the covers are pulled back to reveal an idol with goat's hair on its head. Saul is clearly dismayed that his own daughter has betrayed him, but Michal thinks on her feet, lying to her father that David threatened to kill her if she didn't cover for him. From here, David escapes to Samuel's house in Ramah and the men flee together, lying low among a nearby community of prophets. Still, Saul won't give up. He sends men to catch David, but they appear to be so moved by the prophets that they end up joining them, singing praises and receiving the kind of revelations from God that the Bible describes as prophecy. More soldiers are dispatched, but these men also wind up having a religious experience. Finally, after a third cohort of guards failed to withstand the power, Saul arrives himself to find David. It proves to be an unexpected endgame for the king, who also appears to succumb to the heavenly force field around the prophet's complex. Overcome, Saul strips naked and shares with everyone what he believes God is revealing to him. As soon as David realises that the prophet's compound has been infiltrated by Saul and his men, he leaves, finds Jonathan, and asks him what he might possibly have done to incur such venomous rage in his king. For his part, Jonathan thinks David is overreacting. There is no way that Saul wants David dead, he says. Besides, the king doesn't put any plan in place without consulting him first, so he'd know if there were a plot on David's life. Only when David swears on oath that what he is saying is true, does the king's son agree to help. David tells Jonathan that his father might be protecting him from the truth because he knows that David is his closest friend. On the following day, a royal banquet is planned, but David warns Jonathan that he won't show up. If he is missed, Jonathan should tell Saul that David had to go off to see his family for a clan gathering. If the king is fine about this, then David is safe. If he flies into a rage, Jonathan will know that David is right to fear for his life. David tells his friend that if he has done anything that deserves death, Jonathan should kill him himself rather than wait for Saul to do it. Jonathan is appalled at the thought. Leading David outside possibly to avoid eavesdroppers, he swears to let him know either way in a couple of days' time. His hope is that God remains as close to David as he has been to Saul, showing that it is not yet public knowledge that both God and Samuel have already given up on Saul as Israel's leader. However, Jonathan asks David to continue to show him and his family kindness, even when God has destroyed all his enemies. This suggests that he may have an inkling that David will one day succeed Saul and wants to be sure that he and his family will be safe should David plan any revenge against Saul's dynasty. Jonathan is clearly very fond of David. The book tells readers that he loved him as he loved himself. It is the greatest statement of love between two characters in the whole Bible. Even the amorously charged Song of Songs doesn't match up to this level of affection, preferring to list physical attributes rather than emotions. There is nothing to suggest that this love is in any way homosexual, though there is nothing to suggest that it isn't, setting in place an are-they-aren't-they that has fueled tittle-tattlers through the ages. All that can be deduced from the Bible is that both men later raise families and David lusts after Bathsheba so at least one of the men also harbours heterosexual feelings. Due to their mutual love the men make a formal agreement to remain on good terms and Jonathan shares his hope that God will wipe out David's enemies. There is also a code that will let David know how his absence from Saul's banquet goes down. Jonathan will return to a predetermined hiding place where David will be lying low. There he will shoot three arrows. Depending on where he sends his servant to look for the arrows, David will know whether it's safe for him to come back. The two men then reaffirm their love for one another which seems all the more important now given the hostility between their two families. The festival is to celebrate the new moon and it goes terribly. The first night, Saul accepts David's absence, assuming that he must be ritually unclean and had to stay away. When David remains a no-show the next evening, Saul asks Jonathan where he is. The answer is that David's brother asked him to come and celebrate the festival in Bethlehem, but Saul sees through the story and flies into a rage. He tells Jonathan that he has brought shame upon himself for siding with David. While David lives, he warns his son, he will never be king. He then demands that David be brought to him and killed. When Jonathan tries to plead David's case, Saul flies into such intense rage that he hurls a spear at him, describing him as the son of a perverse and rebellious woman, blaming his mother Ahinoam rather than himself for his son's perceived failings. Happily the spear misses but Jonathan is now under no illusions as to how his father feels about David. The next day. He arrives at the hiding place and shoots three arrows. As the young boy accompanying him is about to pick one up, Jonathan suggests he try looking further on for it, the signal that lets David know that he is in danger. As Jonathan's servant takes the arrows back to Gibeah, David falls to his feet before his friend. This is goodbye, and the men kiss, weep, and swear everlasting friendship between their families before David slips away into the desert. David now knows for a fact what he already assumed was true. Saul wants him dead and it's time for him to leave Israel. David's escape plan takes him first to the city of Nob where the tabernacle is now located and where there is a large population of priests to oversee its safekeeping. The priest in charge seems terrified that one of Saul's generals has turned up incognito. David convinces the holy man that he is on a secret mission And though there is nothing to eat, the priest allows David and his handful of companions to eat some of the consecrated bread set aside for use in the tabernacle, on the proviso that they have kept themselves ritually pure and free from any sexual encounters with women. David assures him that he and his men remain celibate while out on the road. To him, every mission is a holy one. Lurking in the shadows is Saul's chief shepherd, a thug named Derg who sees and hears everything. David asks the priest if there are any weapons in the building and sure enough the sword with which he killed Goliath is hidden here. Delighted, David takes the sword to the Philistine city of Gath. His fame goes ahead of him and the king of Gath's servants recognise him as Saul's famous warrior, even singing the song about him killing tens of thousands of people. This is disastrous for David, who doesn't want any news getting back to Saul that might reveal his whereabouts. He needs to leave immediately without causing offence, and the only practical way he can think of doing this is to pretend that he has lost his mind. David bashes doors and drools so convincingly that Gath's king can't get rid of him fast enough. He has enough loose cannons in his kingdom to deal with as it is without another unhinged maniac. Moving on from Gath, David holds up in a cave back across the border in Judah, where he is visited by his father and brothers. Here he is also joined by around 400 troops who have clearly become disillusioned with Saul. Appreciating that his entire family is now in danger from Israel's king, David brings them to Moab and remains here with them until a prophet named Gad urges him to return to Israel. Slipping back into a wooded area of Judah, he awaits further instruction. By stopping in Nob, David unwittingly sets in motion one of the most appalling events described in the Old Testament. Back in Gibeah, Saul hears that David is back in Israel and knows that some of his own men have defected. He asks his remaining soldiers what promises David has made them to persuade them to switch allegiance. He is angry that no one warned him that his son Jonathan is in cahoots with David and has encouraged him to plot against him. By now, the king is utterly paranoid. David is running for his life and poses absolutely no threat to him. It is then that Saul's shepherd Durg lets on that David was spotted in Nob, that the priest in charge of the compound spoke to God on his behalf and even presented him with Goliath's sword. Israel's unhinged king then summons the entire cohort of priests from their sanctuary and asks their leader why he has conspired against him. He wants to know why he provided David with bread and weapons so that his rogue general can plan a rebellion against him. The priest is nonplussed. David is a respected Israelite general. He is head of Saul's personal bodyguard and his son-in-law. He is also one of the most patriotic men in the country with a huge number of victories under his belt. Saul's accusation makes no sense to him. Besides, David has been to Nob on numerous occasions before this to ask for God's opinion. The king can accuse him all he likes, but for his part, the priest has no idea what's going on. Saul doesn't buy a word of it. His blood is up and his mind is set. In his blinkered view of the situation, this priest and his cronies knew that David was on the run, yet said nothing to their king. They are traitors and they must die. He orders his officials to dispatch the priests but their inherent respect of Israel's priesthood means that none of them are prepared to carry out such an appalling act of sacrilege. Because he is from Edom, Derg probably isn't Jewish, making the murder of Israelite priests less taboo for him and, grabbing his sword, he finishes what he started. Slaughtering 85 holy men isn't enough for Derg. Like a human angel of death, he strides into Nob and slays its women, its children and its livestock. In a collection of books that have their fair share of mass killings, the cold-blooded execution of the unarmed and innocent priests of Nob ranks as one of the most shocking in the Bible. It is an attack on God's sanctuary, ordered by a man who God once anointed and has subsequently abandoned, and marks a new low point for Saul, in an already far from glorious reign. One of the priest's sons escapes the slaughter, a man named Abiathar. A priest himself, he reaches David who is mortified at the news. He feels personally responsible for the death of this young man's entire family and tells him that he knew Derg would rat them out. He reassures the young man that he is safe now, but safety is relative Saul remains intent on killing them both. It's been a grisly turn of events. At the high of David's defeat of Goliath is now distant history as he flees from his psychotic king. There now begins a game of cat and mouse as Saul appears to forget that he has a nation to rule and a people to defend and puts his entire energy into stalking David. The sense from the Bible narrative is that God is against Saul because he has failed to live up to God's high standards and that he is for David who he sees as a paragon of kingly virtue. However David's need for self-preservation sends him deep behind enemy lines where he operates as a mercenary soldier fighting battles for Israel's Philistine neighbours. Has Israel's next anointed king gone rogue even before he has reached the throne? Has God switched allegiance from the Israelites to the Philistines? For now, all David knows is that he needs to run. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. And if you like reading as much as you do listening... You can find Snakes and Angels, a secular walk through the first five books of the Bible, available on Amazon. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Just search Holy Bible Podcast. And if you like what you're hearing, why not give us a five-star rating? Thank you very much, and see you all next time.